0: whatever market category you choose is going to come with a set of baggage and that's good uh, because positioning is all about creating the right assumptions in the minds of your buyers and when I say it's good that whatever you say is going to come with baggage it's uh, good if you choose correctly it's bad uh, if you don't
1: welcome to under the hood of developer marketing the podcast devoted to Developer Marketing, Relations, Evangelism and Advocacy. I'm Stathis Georgopoulos, and I'm your host. In each episode, I welcome a guest from the Developer Marketing world. We talk about best practices, challenges, lessons learned and share insights, data and experiences to help you boost your devrel game, talk to and engage with developers. This podcast is brought to you by Slashdata the leading analyst of the developer economy, and devrelx.com, a hub devoted to providing resources for developer marketing professionals, including developer ecosystem trends, news and job openings, webinars, a book, and a bi-weekly digest you can subscribe to. Access them all at devrelx.com. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Under the Hood of Developer Marketing Season 3. I really hope you enjoyed our latest episode featuring a great panel discussion from the Future Developer Summit on what developer-led growth means. Make sure to join us for Episode 3 in October, and you can also watch more presentations and discussions at futuredeveloper.io. Allow me to welcome today's guest, Emily Omnia, who is the leader behind Emily Omnia Consulting. Emily, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: As a child, what did you want to be when you
0: grew up? I wanted to be a trapeze artist.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> that That's was super-
0: unexpected.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That wasn't, this is the best part about, you know, this question. Children, you know, dream big. And uh, we did to at least. <laughs> so trapeze artist is, uh, has come up for the first time. And I really love it, uh, to be honest.
0: Well, I, I actually would have been uh, very surprised if it was the, coming up for the second or third time.
1: Wow, that's awesome. So do you want to tell us more about yourself? Uh, How did you end up in your current role or what was your journey from dreaming to be a trapeze artist to having your own consulting company? on,
0: Yeah, so um, I I will say that the trapeze artist dream wasn't totally random. I was involved with a, a local circus performance group when I was a kid. Like starting from age three, um, so that's that's why I had that dream, uh, but I I did not ultimately pursue it for a variety of reasons. But uh, I've had a a fairly interesting and unusual path Um, when I was younger. When I was in my 20s, I traveled a lot. I taught English in Spain. I had a couple um, sort of quote-unquote internet businesses that uh, were not financially successful. We'll just say that. But uh, I had a company called Sputnik Guides that had podcast tours yeah. Then, and then I went to journalism school and I b- became a journalist. That's kind of how this, this starts because uh, then I got into tech journalism. And then from there, I got into um, content marketing for technology companies. And then uh, that sort of led into what I do now um, because uh, you work... So I was Doing um, consulting as a content marketer, and uh, you start to realize that for a lot of companies, the problem wasn't their content marketing. Their problem was more fundamental, and that uh, their problem was was their positioning. And um, so that's sort of how I ended up working on positioning with companies. Is after you know working with a lot of them and and just seeing that they were bringing me in to do. Something that is necessary but isn't going to be effective unless you have the foundation in place.
1: Yeah, that's a great journey. And I'm really excited, you know, to have a fellow person that comes from a marketing background instead of you know, a more traditional path coming from a technical background and turning to you know marketing or advocacy or relations. So I'm really excited to, to hear what you're going to share with us today. Now with the world slowly reopening, what is something that you will be doing again soon after a long time?
0: Well, good question. Um, I am really excited about going to concerts, particularly like outdoor concerts. It's summer, so that, that I'm really excited about. And then, you know, honestly, just like the basic stuff, like going to restaurants I, I wouldn't actually say that I'm much of a you know, I I don't go to restaurants super regularly or I didn't, I should say, but I'm I'm was even thinking about how I should like have a plan to go try all the new restaurants in town.
1: Yeah, that sounds super cool and uh I'm <laughs> sure the local restaurants will love it jumping from one to another after so long. Any artists that you really like to see in a concert?
0: You know, it's funny. I'm actually not even thinking that way. It's more what I'm looking forward to is more like the Concerts in the park with the local bands, not the like big, you know, big stadium concerts. That's, I'll probably not go to those.
1: Okay. Then supporting your local scene is always, uh, it's always great. Yep. Yeah. Now, Emily, let's talk data. Can you please pick a graph from devrelex.com slash trends and tell us what stands out to you and why?
0: Sure. Let me pull, pull one of these up. So the one that I was looking at earlier was actually about the Buying patterns of Kubernetes users. And um, I work with a lot of companies that are in the Kubernetes ecosystem. So I found it really interesting to see that Kubernetes users were more likely to make buying decisions than, um, shall we say, you know, regular front-end developer teams. Um, you know, I also think it's interesting to there, there was a graph also showing that developers in general are. Are making a lot, or at least influencing a lot of buying decisions, and then the Kubernetes users were influencing them even more.
1: Yes, and uh, I just want to note that for anyone who's interested in, um, also interested in what you say. For the Future Developer Summit Episode 2 that just was live last month, early in mid-June, the, we will still have available at futuredeveloper.io a presentation we did from our latest survey data where we can see how developers are influencing decisions and how developers are becoming more decision makers for buying decisions within a company. Mm-hmm. So I, I just want to say... if. You're interested in finding more about this uh, you can go to futuredeveloper.io and uh, look up the past presentations and uh, you can access it it's uh, it's free. Now Emily you kind of mentioned it in the beginning but now it's the time you know for us to discuss it deeper. When we say positioning what do
0: we mean? Excellent question. So uh, positioning is about uh a- well, first of all, positioning is about what, how do you answer when somebody says, uh, what is your product? Like, you know, let's say, you know, X, what is X? Like, how do you answer them? Uh, you're going to answer them with uh, basically the market category that you think your product is. You know, X is a continuous integration platform. X is a testing tool. X is a deployment engine. And uh, that's your positioning. Now, whatever market category you choose is going to come with a set of baggage. And that's good uh, because positioning is all about creating the right assumptions in the minds of your buyers. And when I say it's good that whatever you say is going to come with baggage, it's good if you choose correctly. It's bad if you don't. Because the key to good positioning is creating the right set of assumptions so that when you're having a conversation about your product, people aren't asking you quote-unquote stupid questions. They're asking relevant questions that are about how your product is unique, how it's different from other alternatives. They're not asking about either... Features that are like so basic that they're just totally table stakes, or asking about things that are like totally oddball—you can't even figure out why they're they're asking in relation to your product. Then there's this actually a second part of positioning, which is uh, figuring out who's going to benefit the most from your product. And uh, no matter how awesome your product is, it's going to be more valuable for some people than for others. And uh, you want to be marketing to the people who are going to get the most value out of your product because they're going to a they're going to pay you more for it, so you can have higher prices. Uh, B they're going to uh, convert better, so you're going to have you know better conversion rates throughout your entire funnel. And then just bottom line, you're going to get more leads in general because you're going to be able to focus your your marketing and your sales on. Uh, this you know really specific market and and talk to them. There's one other point I wanted to make about positioning, uh, which is that even though this is a marketing podcast, um, positioning is not just marketing. And one of the things, the sort of common misconceptions I see among founders is that. Positioning is a marketing problem. And they try to delegate it to their marketing person. And um, positioning is really foundational to your company. And, you know, like I said at the beginning, it's the answer to like, w- what do you do? W- what's your product? And that that market category, that sort of label that you're slapping on your product, that has to be consistent every time anybody connected with your company opens their mouth. And As a founder or, you know, as a CEO, even a non-founder CEO, you have to be involved. That is very core to your business.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, this may be a developer marketing podcast, but, you know, we know how developer marketing is extremely different than um, consumer marketing, for example. So in our case, how is positioning developer tools different from a consumer product positioning, for Mm -hmm. example?
0: Yeah, so there's uh, there's actually a couple layers here. So there's how is B two B product positioning different from consumer product positioning, and then there's how is developer tool positioning different from other B two B products. And um, I, I'm actually going to address that second part because um, I think it's the most interesting for for listeners. The the first thing to keep in mind when you're selling or marketing a developer tool is uh, that the competitive alternatives are different than if you're selling a a b2b you know a, a b2b software usually i'm not talking about like you know an industrial machine or something so if you're selling a b2b software and you're selling it to let's say accountants those accountants aren't going to think ah you know this is a kind of a cool tool but wouldn't it be really great if i just like made this myself no uh, an accountant is never going to have that thought about software if you are selling to developers, that is a legitimate competitive alternative that you're going to run into every single time. Every company is going to have considered uh, if they should DIY this, this project. Um, a lot of times it's not a good idea, um, but it is a really serious uh, there's a really serious build versus buy debate in the developer ecosystem. That's point one. Um, And then uh, point two is that there's open source to deal with. So a lot of companies that I work with have an open source uh, component to their business. Um, There's different open source business models. But regardless, um, if you have an open source project, uh, you have to pay attention to positioning that open source project, to positioning whatever your paid offering is, and then to managing the relationship between the two. And you can't ignore any of those pieces because they're sort of key to having a cohesive story about your company. And then also to making sure that people are are choosing the right option for them and that you're marketing the the you know the correct option to the right the right type of of user.
1: Yes, I just love how you made the distinction, you know, between, uh, you know, developers choosing to DIY the project uh, internally versus, you know, other, I'll say job categories uh, who won't even, will never think about it, as you said, with uh, the accountant's example. Yeah, Yeah, I I really love this this point.
0: I mean, an accountant is never going to have that thought. And I think there's also a very different dynamic. Um, This gets sort of more into your marketing strategy, but there's a very different dynamic in terms of like sort of your, your company's status as a thought leader. And your the sort of the relationship that you have with your with your users, I find that it's very different for developer tools companies than again for the like software for accountants. I don't think that accountants. I, I guess I'm not a specialist, but I don't think that accountants look to their software provider they like a, a place that they're going to go and learn and and become better accountants. They look at it as a, as a tool, but developers actually often look to developer tool companies and their software as you know a a place to find community whether it's in the open source project or um, even if even in like just closed source projects like community around being a user of a particular software is is a really is a real thing in the developer community and uh, they look as at companies as like a way to educate themselves about their craft to become better developers in a way that I do not think you see from software companies in other B2B markets.
1: Yeah, this is definitely, definitely spot on. I agree a hundred percent. Speaking about, you know, the developer audience, which is uh, the one we care about, uh, especially in this podcast. So for developers, why is it important how you will choose to position your product?
0: So, um even though i've just talked about the ways in which developers are different developers are still human beings and they make assumptions just like the rest of us and they are going to have baggage uh, around particular terms and it's not always logical but it it is it is a real thing so one company i was working with uh, recently had a project uh, a product that is it's really like the the goal of this of this product is to improve your cloud security. And before we worked together, they were describing it as a, a cloud security product. And the problem is that among people in the cloud ecosystem and in the security ecosystem, so there's that sort of crossover, cloud security has a, a certain, and you know, it carries a certain baggage. The term carries a certain baggage that didn't apply to what this. Product did, so when you think of cloud security, you'd often think of um, like policy management and you know checking against best practices, and that's not what this product did. So developers, you know, they have their own baggage, just like everyone else. They have terms that they're going to understand in a specific way. So it, it it matters just as much, and perhaps even more actually, for the developer marketplace. I want to just add one more thing, which is, I I said, perhaps even more, which is Mm -hmm. the the reason I think it might matter even more for developers is because developers often... have even less tolerance for uh, for BS, and I don't think anybody has like a high tolerance for BS. But um, this is something that people say about developers. I think it's true, you know. And this also comes with the fact that developers can look under the hood of your product um, often uh, if they want to, so they can kind of sniff out whether or not things are as as you've portrayed them. If you position, if your their assumption about your product is incorrect. And they feel like they've been misled, intentionally or not. Sometimes it's just that your your positioning is bad. It's not that you meant to mislead them. Uh, that can r- really affect your reputation. So you really don't want to make developers feel like you're misleading them.
1: I do totally second the concept that... Especially developers have very low tolerance, you know, for BS. And uh, as you said, the fact that they can uh, look under the hood of your project, you know, to see how it works, is a really key factor here. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for <laughs> mentioning that. Now, before we, you know, start recording this episode, we, we were talking, and you said that neither open source projects or commercial projects should ever try creating a new category. Can you please explain why? Why do you say that?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, so everyone wants to create a new category. Uh, this is true, I, I think, not just of developer tool companies, but of, of, of everyone. Because you, if you're starting a company, you're like, oh my God, nobody has ever done anything at all, even remotely close to what I'm doing. It's totally unique. I'm going to you know, create some amazing new market category to describe what I'm doing. The problem with this is that people don't make any assumptions about this new category when they hear it. They just feel confused because they've never heard it before. And that is not what you want. So confused people do not buy and new categories are created. But uh, particularly if you are a startup and you don't have 5 years to, you know, start be- being profitable and you would like to get some people to buy your product now you're going to find that with creating a new category, you have to make a huge investment into your marketing effort that may or may not pay off uh, because it's, it's absolutely not guaranteed that just because you've created a new category, you're ultimately going to win that category. In fact, what generally happens is that you create a, you spend a ton of money creating a new category and then you run out of money and then somebody else comes in and takes advantage of the fact that you've, you've created this new category for people. What's a better strategy is that you, you want to find a way to put together a terms that people already understand to create something, to create a market category that, that is unique. And there's a couple of ways it could be unique. Um, but not you don't want to be try to create a you don't want to try to create a category that's totally novel uh, and that people just aren't gonna know what you're talking about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you have mentioned you know the term assumptions has come up quite a few times now. So uh, you mentioned that creating new categories can lead to confusion a lot of times. So for the case of the developers, how can these new category affect them? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Well, let me, let me back up. I want to talk just um, because since you mentioned it really quickly touch on the, the idea of assumptions, Um, Mm -hmm. because sometimes the word assumptions has like negative connotations and uh, we make assumptions We're we're human beings. We make assumptions. Uh, You see the sun shining and you think, oh, it's probably hot today. That that's fine. Like this is how human beings understand the world. Assumptions get us into trouble when they are you know, when they're sexist or racist or things like that, they get us into trouble when they are, um, when they're incorrect. And that's when we notice them. And positioning is really about leveraging the power of assumptions so that you have assumptions that are correct about your product. When, when you make an assumption and it turns out to be correct, you just barely, it just, everything just seems smooth. You won't notice it. Um, it's when your assumption about a product turned out to be incorrect that you really notice it, and it sort of really, um, you know, hits you in the face, and that be- that feels really uncomfortable. Assumptions, like like I said, they're not good or bad; uh, they they just are. Uh, and there's all, there's some kinds of assumptions that are bad, but in general, you know, human beings make assumptions like hundreds of times every day about every type of situation we encounter and they are very powerful uh, when it comes to marketing and to positioning. So then uh, next you know how do, how do developers how are they affected by by confusion and by the confusion created from from uh, new categories. So developers like I said they're human beings. They they get confused just like other human beings. And when they encounter a tool that doesn't fit into what they what they understand as the types of tools that they should be using, it's confusing to them. And if they're really busy and if you they don't really understand how this is going to make their life different, they're just going to move on. And that's why creating a new category is kind of sort of a dangerous way to approach your positioning.
1: Yeah. And thank you also for making the distinction, you know, for assumptions as a, you know, fellow marketing guy myself have come, this has come up uh, quite a few times, you know, where we sometimes do confuse assumptions with uh, bias, for example, but, you know, assumptions are uh, key, especially in you know, positioning a product because you, you need to see what, what it does and what comes along with it. And uh, also it has a lot of times it has to do with people's expectations of it. Now, you are obviously the best person to talk positioning. Which do you feel is the best positioning strategy to follow?
0: Yeah, so the best positioning strategy that I always recommend is what I consider the big fish in this uh, small pond. That is uh, taking uh, some, some uh, market category that people already understand and sort of slicing off a piece of it. Some piece of it that's not being served by the other tools that are that are already in that market, and focusing on that. And um, so segmentation is important here. The key to, to being a big fish in a small pond is you want to be targeting companies that have some some sort of characteristics in common that is genuinely not served by the the existing tools that are in that same in that existing market. And I say companies, you know, serving developers, right? That are that are not being served by by the tools that are in that market. Um, I actually like to think in the developer tool space to to think of characteristics of applications and characteristics of workloads, because that's ultimately the most important thing, rather than you know necessarily the characteristics of say the company. Developers are going to be thinking about like, oh, I have an I/O bound application that has to do X. And uh, you could have your product say, you know, we do X for IO bound applications. That's very specific. Um, so the key and how you get to be this the totally unique is, you know, tying yourself to a larger market ecosystem, but only trying to address a, a small piece of it.
1: Yeah, I think uh, this is very key. You know, instead of going, as we said, that which is not the best strategy, you know, with something uh, totally new, linking what you have to an existing uh, product category, for example, and uh, then working on that to differentiate on what is it that you're offering that is new. Mm-hmm. You mentioned segmentation within this part. How important is it, you know, in, in this strategy? Uh,
0: yeah, segmentation is like extremely important in positioning. It, you know, if we think of the there's sort of two parts of positioning. One is d- defining your market category, two is, is segmenting your market. It's really key. You know, I, I work mostly with the companies that consider themselves startups. They don't have infinite budgets. They need to focus on the people who are most likely to buy their product. So, uh, and, and I, like, just to back up, I, I this, this applies equally to open source projects too, you know, especially like, let's say you're just, you know, one developer and you have this open source project you're doing on your free time and you, you like it to grow. Um, you also need to segment because there's, there's things that you're going to do to promote your open source project, um, but you don't have infinite time either. Regardless of whether you're promoting a, a side project, you know a side open source project, or you are a venture funded startup, like your your pocket and your time and your resources are not infinite. You need to focus on the people who are going to be most likely to. Uh, in the open source example. Um, not just become users but become community members and contributors to your project in the case of the paid product that are going to buy your product and not just buy it but they're going to love your product and they're going to tell other people about it. The segmentation allows you to figure out, you know, what are the characteristics of the people who are going to love this product or this open source project. You do like ultimately you are marketing to people. So you, you do want to think about like what are the characteristics of the workload that they're that they're uh, working on, what is their persona, like what is their job title? We can talk about developers as sort of this like almost monolithic group, but they're very non-monolithic. There's SREs, there's front-end developers, there are, you know, Kubernetes administrators, like there's all kinds of people and we could say like software engineers as a, as an umbrella term, but there's um, you know, then there's directors of engineering and VPs of engineering, and they have their needs as well. So you want to think about, you know, the, what the persona is, the characteristics of their application. And then obviously like the characteristics of the company as well, that, that they're working on, assuming, you know, that this isn't just a, a product for hobbyists. And it has to do also with thinking like, what's the pain point that you're solving? Why does anybody even need your your product? Who is going to encounter that pain point? For whom is this pain going to be like really severe? Even if everybody experiences this this pain, sometimes the, you know, for some people the pain is going to be like eh, kind of annoying, and for some people it's going to be like really critical to their business. Will you want to go after the people for whom this pain is like really a threat to their to their business?
1: Speaking for from us at Last Data, where we do developer research, I really have to say that as you mentioned, developers are definitely not a monolithic group, and actually, we've seen segmentation is key. You know, in understanding your uh, developer audience, it might be the reason why your product or new effort or new endeavor you're doing it might you know make or break. So I uh, yeah, I totally second that. You mentioned segmentation, which is obviously a very key component in this strategy. Now, if you could make a short how to position your product or project effectively checklist, what would be in that checklist?
0: Excellent. So uh, the first step is to understand who are your best fit users. And I'm trying to use neutral language here so we can include both paid products and open source projects. But who are your best fit customers or your best fit users? And a best fit user is just like, these are the the people or, or companies that you wish you could clone. They close to deal with you really fast. They don't ever haggle on price. They are always willing to like, give you a case study or a testimonial or something like that. They're just really excited about your product. Once you figure out who these people are, it's a good idea to talk to them and to really make sure you understand what pain points they are using your product to solve and uh, what they would do if your product disappeared tomorrow. And when you ask about, you know, what would you do if your product disappeared tomorrow? What you're trying to figure out is what the competitive alternatives are. And competitive alternatives are not um, competitive products. So they are things like we would DIY. We would, in some companies, it's not just we would DIY, but like we would create an open source project ourselves. We would just ignore the problem and live with it. Have some sort of manual process to to fix this fix this pain. So it's not just competitive products, but you want to understand what those competitive alternatives are. And then compare your, the competitive alternatives to your product in terms of what is what are the unique attributes of your product or your open source project compared to the thing that your your best customers would do if you didn't exist. The important thing is to, to not get too caught up here in who your like quote unquote competitors are in the marketplace, because sometimes the people you think of as your competitors are not what your your customers would actually do if you didn't exist. Unique attributes can be both like your amazing features, but it could also be like your support. It could be your your pricing structure. Uh, you know, for example, maybe you have usage-based pricing, and a competitive alternative has like a flat monthly fee. That would be a unique attribute. It could even be, you know, that if we're talking about an open-source project, like the fact that it is open-source can be a, a selling point, a selling quote-unquote. It can be an advantage for for the right uh, type of user. So once you have a, a, your unique attributes, and most companies are going to have like dozens, like. 20, 30. Then you want to boil those down into value themes. So think about what value each of those attributes provides. And you're going to end up grouping these into like either from one to five. You don't want to go more than five value themes. If you only have one value theme, that's also fine. Um, sometimes companies get really anxious about that because they think they're they're like not good enough just because they only have one value theme. It's fine to have only one value. Just like knock that value out of the park, and and you're good. In fact, it's like then then you get to be even more focused. Uh, but get really clear on what the value, so what the like larger business value is, not just your feature. So then you have like three to five values that you provide really well. And then next, once you've clarified the value that you provide, then uh, you want to think about who cares a lot about that value. And that's how you start segmenting your market is by by thinking through um, and also basing this on who on those the characteristics of your best fit customers. Like what characteristics do those best fit customers have in common? And what can they tell you about the type of people who get the most value out of your product? How can you then you know, get really clear on those characteristics so then that you can speak directly to to those people? And then based on all of that, you're going to get your market category. Market category is the last thing that you address, even though it's sort of the core of your positioning. But after you've gone through all of those steps, um, you you want to do what... It was really like a almost a brainstorming exercise where you think about um, how to slap the right words, slap the right market category onto your product that is going to make people... Immediately understand the value that you provide. Uh, so, in my experience, like this is a little—it's a little trial and error. Uh, you have to sort of throw out a bunch of a bunch of ideas, get the team to sort of articulate. Like when we say X, I think Y, and uh, then then eventually you'll come to the market category that's able to best to describe what your product is, and and create that that correct set of assumptions.
1: Thank you very much for going through that checklist, which I really believe is the gist of uh, this episode, you know, uh, where everything that we discussed comes together. And um, if you don't mind, I really like to, to summarize it and uh, please correct me if I've missed something. So. Uh, you start with segmenting uh, actually your users, trying to see who your product addresses. Then you identify the unique attributes of what you have to offer, whether it is an open source project or your product. Then the business value you provide. And then you try to figure out who cares a lot uh, about this value that you're offering, which is again segmenting the market. So uh, this is the second time. Uh, Because we mentioned it before, segmenting has uh, come up. The first one is on the first step where you segment uh, to the users and then segmenting the market. And then finally, after you have all these, you can focus on selecting your marketing category, which is actually where you will be positioning your product.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: Perfect. So thank you very much for that. Emily, I think this is the best way uh, we could close this episode, you know, with a hands-on guide on how to position the product or project that it's new to the market and uh, to the users. So if, however, someone wants to hear more from you, how can they reach you?
0: So uh, you can come to uh, my blog, uh, my website. So I am at positioningopensource.com. You can also come to my website at emilyomir.com, but it's harder to spell. And uh, I also host a podcast, The Business of Cloud Native. um, So you can listen to the podcast. And uh, the podcast uh, uh, addresses sort of how entrepreneurial engineers can... um, succeed in building a business uh, around developer tools, around tools for other engineers. Uh, yeah, go, go, go to my website. I'm also on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. And uh, I'm also on Twitter. Emily O'Meara is my Twitter handle. And uh, I'm trying to be more active on Twitter. So feel free to can follow me on Twitter and send me a message. I, I'm I'm working on being more active there
1: that's great. And don't worry, I will help with the spelling. I will make sure to include uh, your website on this uh, episode's description. So if you guys have trouble spelling it, you can always look in the description and find it there. So to close on a positive note, what's one good thing that happened in 2020?
0: Uh, I love this question because I actually thought that uh, not being able to do a lot of things was uh, in some ways a positive. I think in sort of our modern lives we can get really caught up in like you know going going from one place to another doing a lot of activities and um it can it can be a little bit overwhelming and so like honestly I thought that in many ways not having that option open to me was um was really freeing
1: Cannot agree more. You know, it was a, it was also a great chance. You know, to to take a stop from uh, going, you know, fast or too fast at some point. and uh, you know, seeing there are other things or just even just taking it slower was great. Exactly, Emily. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode.
0: Thank you. This was a really great conversation. And thank you
1: to our listeners for listening to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, the podcast devoted to developer marketing and relations. You can listen to all episodes, find free resources and the latest news at devralex.com. You can also subscribe to our bite-sized bi-weekly digest or follow us on Twitter at slash data HQ. Thank you very much.